0: Hey guys, it's Tiffany and Shauna, and welcome to Homelessness LA, the human experience, the podcast where we shed light on personal, raw stories of our homeless community. Through understanding and engaging, we as individuals can learn and change the discourse of homelessness for the better. So let's begin. God bless the nation, obligation, altercation, interest of conflict, population, lost your patience.
1: Confirmation, symptoms of a hostage Five years ago, I was on a street, on a park like this, sleeping under the sun. Huh. Today, I'm a college student, as a volunteer manager, living in a three-bedroom apartment with two amazing roommates, with my family back.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much for yeah, thank being, being here with us. Thank, thank you.
1: So I was born in Los Angeles and grew up in Gardena okay. in the South Bay with a mother that did her best to raise us. My mm-hmm. father had a little bit of a drinking problem. My mother was a devoted Christian that was trying to figure it out, right. and uh, it became difficult for her, but she did the best. Growing up, it definitely became a very complicated life because I've always lived with some form of doubt, some form of fear, just feeling like I never got the manual to life, right? It looked like everyone else was able to live life according to the way that you're supposed to, but for me, it was always complicated, which put me in a position where I just felt so tight
0: and wind up. As if Um, you're in a room that's closing in on you? mm -hmm.
1: Every year, that room kept getting smaller and smaller.
0: Right. And
1: by the age of 17, I graduated high school wow. just barely. Where did you go to high school? I went to Gardena High. Nice. Mm-hmm. Did the whole four years there. Started off well, ended up pretty bad, but still graduated just because of the fact, like, my older brothers were born in Mexico and were brought here. So me and my third oldest sister, the one that was born before me, we were pretty much held with a high standard of you're going to graduate high school, you're going to go to college, you're going to get a career. Move in life and just get the opportunities that we worked our butts off for, right? Okay. That's my brother's point of view. My parents, it was just like, we didn't come here for you guys to mess up. Right. It's a lot of
0: pressure. It's a lot
1: of pressure. So on top of everything that I have already was feeling internally, now it's coming out from the outside. But by 17, my family got a letter stating that if I don't do well for my 12th year, that I will not be graduating or walking the stage.
0: And how did that feel in the moment?
1: In the moment, I didn't care Mm -hmm. because I was already at this point where I had just came out to my friends. So I'm now starting to kind of uncover a little bit more about myself.
0: Were your family and friends accepting of that?
1: My family? No, they actually found out a year later. Oh, wow. So my friends were okay with it. Most of them. (laughs) Some of them, you know, just that standard, don't get close to me. Don't touch me. Why are you looking Mm -hmm. at me that way? You know, like questioning everything.
0: Must have been very difficult.
1: It was.
0: Do you remember what year this was? This just was in
1: 2004. In... 2004.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Jesus, that's long ago. I know. <laughs> I just wanted to put it into perspective, too, because... Thank you for,
1: the... for making me feel old.
0: No, the climate. <laughs> I, I feel like the old. climate has shifted so it heavily. Has.
1: During that time, we were actually starting a fight for same-sex marriage right. and right. all that. So it was definitely like a flame that was starting to get lit. So uh, yeah. it was difficult for, difficult for my time. Even yeah. then, not as bad as people from the 80s or 70s mm. who had to walk through prejudice right. in every corner and live a life of discreetness.
0: yeah,
1: and- I just didn't care. Living the lifestyle mm. of a punk kid, not caring. Yeah. And with that said, my sole purpose was to just have fun. And that's what I was doing. What was, well, was your fun. idea
0: of fun back then?
1: Going to backyard shows. Mm getting completely drunk on anything that i can get my hands on
0: that um, point in your life were you just drinking or were there other drugs I involved i just started
1: drinking drugs i've done here and there like i've done meth mm-hmm. for like a week okay. and smoked weed yeah. occasionally but alcohol was always the first one got it and that's actually where my life ended up starting from what i could recall that life started getting better to where i can breathe a little easier be a part of something Mm -hmm. feel alive so all that tightness that i had growing up started going away and all it was was just a bottle or two Mm. (laughs) whenever i could with a group of friends that thought and lived the lifestyle that i did i was going into all the prop six protests yeah I was part of the Gay-Straight Alliance over in my college. Mm-hmm. The goals that I remember having then were, I'm going to go to school for architect mm-hmm. and a minor on photography and just do things where I can make a difference, see some of my buildings and be like, that's mine. Is like, that something mm, you were passionate about? I was definitely passionate about. And then something went wrong where I just threw that to the side. From that moment forward, I could never make up my mind As I mentioned, you know, I'm in school now and I still don't know what I want to do yet. I went from architect to photography to cosmetology to I cannot make up my mind. Mm. And that went on for like two semesters. And eventually I just gave up and said, you know what, school's not for me. Which is
0: interesting because the theme of pressure that you were talking about that existed growing up for you, that also exists on another level when you're trying to figure out what, To study in college because Mm -hmm. you're thinking, okay, I have only four years to decide what I want to do, and then to also pick myself up to a point where I can do it myself.
1: That's one of the ideas. Also, the other thing is, how am I going to pay for this? You know, because my parents, they have a sixth grade education, came from Mexico, married at the age of Mm sixteen or fifteen, had children by fifteen typical latin family where it's just like they worked hard but got so little you know so by 2006 by the second weekend i think it was spring semester i dropped school and just said you know what i'm just gonna go find a job and at the same time it just seemed more reasonable for me more realistic because all i have to do is just show up punch in and then do some labor work and so i settled for a retail job Mm. First job ever, never worked in my life. Well, actually, no, that's a lie. I did telemarketing for like two weeks, and then I gave that up. (laughs) As you can tell from the pattern of my life, I just gave up easily. Because of so much doubt that I've lived for, I never thought that I would ever amount to anything. Not even being in school or work.
0: Do you feel that at that time in your life, you had the support system you needed from the people around you? Or do you think that played into your self-doubt and lack of finishing things you started?
1: I recall a handful of people that were a support group. My fourth grade teacher trying to encourage Mm -hmm. me to do better, she she would entice me with little gummies Mm -hmm. to learn how to do fractions and stuff, Mm -hmm. you know. My brother would always encourage me with that firm, sturdy, macho hand, get your shit together or... Tough love. Tough love. And today I see it as that. Then I didn't see that. I just saw it as intimidation. But at the time when I was in college, I'm sure that I had some friends that were probably trying to convince me not to drop school or anything. But I can't say that I do remember that at all. Like I said, my goal became having fun. And fun consisted of getting drunk for me. And... My sexuality played a huge part where with the drinking and the parties came sex as well. Mm-hmm. So that became a huge factor in my in my way of thinking what fun in life was all about. And things they didn't get any better. The problems really started piling up.
0: As you started working in retail?
1: As I started working in retail and just living the fun life. By this time, I'm living still with my mother. I have money coming in but I'm not paying any rent. I'm not helping with any bills. I'm not buying any groceries. My money is going directly to liquor stores or bars because they treat me well, so why not? At least that's the way that I thought, right? (laughs) Right. The one thing that I did inherit from my dad is that he is a spender when it comes to buying things for people. I was just pretty much trying to buy people's friendships. Bribery. Yeah. Bribery. There you go. A
0: form of
1: it. Yeah. A form of it where it's just kind of like, I'm trying, I'm going to buy you whatever you want just so that, you know, we can just hang out. And to me that just seemed reasonable. Right. 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 Sober. That's a whole different story now. Right, of One of the beautiful things that 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 we say in recovery is that when you get sober, you always pick up from where you left off, and where huh. you left off is when you started drinking or using drugs. Wow! So for me, it was at the age of seventeen. Oh. Five years later, now in sobriety, I'm barely little over twenty mentally. <laughs> yeah, like, I see it. I see it. I
0: get it. And that's true.
1: That's a very true statement.
0: I've never thought of it from that perspective, but it makes. I sense. love that idea,
1: like. I'm is. still a little kid in a grown man's body, but, you know, That's okay.
0: I, it's all right.
1: I'm sure that there's normal people out there that still have childish behaviors. Mm-hmm. Like, it's fine.
0: I can name a lot of those people. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, you know, I have no regrets for any of those things.
0: Do you remember a point in your life around that time ever being like, oh, shit, this is now a problem?
1: In 2008, as a matter of fact. From 2005, when I already started drinking, to 2008, I recall losing about six jobs during that time. All from me just being drunk and showing up to work hungover, showing up late or not at all because I was drunk from the night before.
0: When you would show up to work drunk at any of your jobs, were there any authorities above you that said, hey, you need help or? No. 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 Do you think that if they did at that point, I would have probably
1: told them to fuck off. (laughs) The honest truth. I probably would have told them to fuck off because I wasn't ready to hear any of that. Mm. But in 2008, I heard my mom clearly one day where she told me, you're becoming like your father. Mm. And I remember just getting in an argument with her because I felt offended of how dare you compare me to him. I'm nothing like him. And it's true. I'm nothing like him. The only one thing is that I do drink a lot and I spend my money on friends. Okay. But he is a very functioning alcoholic, unlike me. I go out, I drink, don't wake up on time. I show up late, I make excuses, I make up lies, I steal from you, I do everything possibly wrong. And when my mom told me that, she kept telling me every time we get in an argument until one day it finally clicked. And I was just kind of like, oh my God, I am drinking excessively. She probably check this out. And by this point, like I said, my mom's a hardcore Christian and she tried pushing religion. Okay. When she found out about me being gay, she tried... She wanted to do a harder conversion. (laughs) Uh But my oldest sister convinced her to take me to her church, which had a youth pastor, which was also a therapist. Oh, wow. So I agreed to that one because, A, at this point, I hated being Mexican.
0: Mm. I
1: hated knowing Spanish.
0: Mm.
1: So my mom wanted to take me to everything Spanish.
0: Can I ask why?
1: Quite honestly, Uh it's because of the fact that it seemed easier to be white than it did to be anything else. In America, you can get away with a lot of things while being white. It's a truth statement that even to to this day we still see, right? Mm -hmm. And so me seeing that firsthand, I'd rather be white than brown, right? Can
0: you share maybe an experience or two that comes to mind when you explain seeing that firsthand?
1: I mean, where to start? For me, it's... It felt like for me, work-wise, the white people were the ones getting ahead further than me, right? I stayed in the stock room, unpackaging stuff and putting stuff on hangers and price tags and everything for a while until I finally got recognized for my customer service. Customer service, a lot of white people didn't like really talking to me unless I pretended to be a very feminine gay man so that I can make women feel comfortable, or at least their boyfriends as well, so that they wow. didn't believe that I was trying to hit on them. Huh.
0: That's <laughs> crazy. It's, that part is crazy to me because at that point you had come out, mm-hmm. but they're like, no, you're, it's not enough. You because need to of be... the fact
1: I chose the life of not being self so feminine.
0: It's not flamboyant. Not flamboyant.
1: Which, which, which that is... is a choice for a lot of people. Of course. The reason why I bring that up when it comes to the race card is because of a black woman or a Mexican woman or even any other woman. And I'm probably saying words that are not properly or allowed anymore. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's I'm okay. I'm sorry. I'm still learning the lingo nowadays. Yeah, that's okay. Um, so if I came to a black woman or a Mexican woman or any Latin American woman, they would be comfortable and they'd be like, all right, sure, show me what you got. If it was a white woman or an Asian woman, it would always be kind of like, no. And it would be very standoffish or rude sometimes. White women would treat me kind of, like a servant. And I would see them treat other white people well. And it's like, that's the respect that I want for once. That's the reason why I became more gunned down. Like, I'd rather be white than brown. Okay. And
0: just to clarify, you're saying this all from experience. All from experience. Yes. yes. It's important to remember for and our now listeners. I know. Yes.
1: And that's, that was my experience then. Keep in mind that my mind was everywhere. There was no thorough thought, but that was still an experience that I can remember.
0: And I think that in itself is traumatic. It
1: goes back to the self-worth and the doubt and the fear. What am I doing wrong? Well, I'm not doing anything wrong. I know that today, right? I was just being judged by my skin tone or treated according to how you probably grew up believing or felt that I should be treated, right? Which was below you. And today I definitely look down upon that. I never try to behave above anyone else. And if I do, for because I'm not perfect. There are days where I might think someone is stupider than me. And so it comes out. But I have to correct myself. And that's one of the things that I do differently. Is that I catch it and I'm like, you know what? That's pretty rude of me. I apologize Mm -hmm. for that. To have that experience, it's pretty... I do remember having some nightmares. But if anything it set a flame under me i'm gonna get someone's respect one way or another right use it as your
0: motivation my
1: motivation exactly so 2008 i've already gone through i think it was six jobs i'm not even sure and i didn't like it so i just stopped going and i stayed dry for about six months white knuckling it stayed busy all my own i just figured you know what if i just work a lot I'll be fine. And so for six whole months, I put a smile on my face and I showed up to work on time, left on time, did a full day of work. I was still hanging out with friends, but I was doing the responsible thing. we were like, oh, well, it's 10 o'clock. Let me go home. If I didn't trust myself, I would stay home. And those months of being at home with my mom, there wasn't any single argument. I was loving to my mom. I was there for her.
0: You saw a transformation.
1: A difference. Not a transformation, but there was a difference. Because as soon as friends called me to say, hey, we're going to go and take a walk at the beach. Mm-hmm. Do you want to come with? I didn't hesitate to say yes. So that to me is not a transformation. That's just a little...
0: You're still trying to figure out the self-discipline aspect of right. That what's
1: good and what's not. By close to six months, a friend of mine invited me to go to a bar. And in recovery, we say that there's no mental defense against the first drink, meaning that if you're not working a program, if you're not working some spiritual tools, you won't have a defense against anything that gets thrown your way. And so that's exactly what happened. I had no mental defense against the first drink. A friend asked me if I wanted a beer. In my mind, it sounded like a good idea because I think I deserve one. It's almost six months. Mm -hmm. One beer is not going to kill me.
0: Did that friend know you were sober?
1: Trying to get sober. Hmm. By this time, I, I did start realizing the friends that were growing up, grew up and went their way. And the friends that were in the same boat as I am stuck mm. around. Some of them went to other universities and continued their schooling. And I see them now married with children in a house somewhere else. While the other ones that hung out with me for another four years are still trying to do their best to survive.
0: And how does that feel for you and the position you are in now? In hindsight? In
1: hindsight, it sucks. But I get it. And I know how hard it is. I'm putting 200% of my efforts into the life that I have today. And it's only five years. And I only have a little bit compared to what I could have had. I remember one of the goals that I had was, you know, like I mentioned, own my own business eventually, hopefully. Get married, have kids, have a house. The whole nine yards, right? Right. I got to a job <laughs> but
0: this is five years but it's
1: five years in the working but there's a major change because there's a lot more than just the material stuff compared to this
0: I think that's at the end of the day what's really important because that makes you who you are at your core
1: right so the material things I know for a fact are going to be gone next year I probably won't have this phone I mean I've had it for a year and already cracked and I'm ready to buy a new
0: one <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <that's laughs> like the light.
1: material things do not last for a while yeah, in life yeah. you know can't
0: get attached to them no
1: But when it comes to morals and work skills and all that, that's ongoing. And those are skills that are not easy to learn. This whole life thing is a difficult thing for somebody like me, but I'm proving it to myself day to day that it's doable. So from 2008, from that day, all the way to 2012, started drinking, life got worse, and I lost a lot more friends.
0: So is this round of drinking what led to your homelessness?
1: It led me to a peak. Can
0: you explain that a little more?
1: So I started drinking and things got a little bit tough. Got into more arguments with friends, lost another job. Did not look like luck was on my side, right? In 2012, when it got to the end of the year, I had my last debacle of drinking. And on this one, I messed up because the last best friend that I had got me a job for a celebrity hairstylist in West Hollywood. I would have had a productive and successful career there because of my knowledge in retail, customer service and product acknowledgement. I see that today and it's just kind of like I could have definitely been doing well by now, right? Mm-hmm. Especially working for a celebrity hairstylist. When I was working at the salon in 2012, I was on and off drinking for about 10 months and eventually my birthday came up and I was just kind of, you know what, it's time to go have a drink. My alcoholic thinking took me to making a stupid this. dessert, stupid decision. And so I ended up getting drunk on my boss's expense, taking her register money. Wow. Ended up in her salon in the morning, drunk, not knowing what happened, just finding a stylist in front of me with my boss on the phone. And hearing him say there's blood on the wall, not a single cut on me, nothing. I don't remember anything. But there was no one else there. So I don't know what
0: happened. To this day,
1: day, I've even given up on trying to remember. And if it's my time to remember, it's my time. But I will say that that was the most demoralizing moment for me because this best friend did everything that she could to get me that job. And she made me promise her that I wouldn't screw this up because she already knew how I was drinking. Mm -hmm. And I screwed it up.
0: (laughs) And at that time she was your support.
1: Well, I had two supports then, her and another friend that I've known since middle school. So I lost that job. And for a lot of addicts and alcoholics that are young, we think we just find the right person. They're gonna change our lives for the good. Well, I found that right person but it wasn't for the good. I got in a relationship with a guy that I met on a dating app.
0: Hmm.
1: He introduced me to heroin. And from that moment forward is when everything went downhill. So that's where the peak is. I right? see. So drinking was definitely taking off. And I was trying my best. But then you found love. Up, found love and drugs came in the picture as well. And for three years straight, I was on a binge of shooting up heroin and meth. And taking a few Xanax and anything else I can get my hands on.
0: Were you living with your mom at this time?
1: No, shortly after I met him. My mom kicked me out for like the 100th time. I don't even remember. And I left telling her things that I regret. And since then, I've made amends for. Mm -hmm. I moved in with him a month after us being together when his dad passed away. And that's actually how all that started. I did not come into this relationship knowing that he had a heroin issue. That it was a family thing.
0: So his whole family
1: was doing heroin and I was... recall his mother shooting me up. <laughs> wow. Shitting both of us up. So That's heavy. That's pretty but it's the reality. Did of he things. live with his No. He lived in Highland Park with his dad. I lived with my last friend that I had, okay. which is the one that I've known since junior high. And then his dad died and I moved in with him. Got it. That very same night that he found his dad dead wow. and then like a month later we moved back in with my friend until we found another place because the lease was up for that apartment and then we moved in together and by ourselves
0: you don't mind me asking what caused his dad's death?
1: it was gangrene wow. gangrene but it was the gangrene came from so many abscess and from shooting up and just it all leads back up to the drug, drug. use yep. and poor health right he loved his dad a lot His dad and him never talked about his homosexuality until I came into the picture. I guess his dad liked the way that I treated him because with anyone else that's not my parents, I will treat you like royalty. And so he liked that. And so I guess he told my ex at some point, if there was anyone that he can see his son marrying, it's me. Wow. And so that became personal for him and... In and this I'm sure for you
0: too, it, getting that acceptance from a fatherly figure.
1: Yes, <laughs> very <laughs> yeah, much so. it's huge. A very huge deal. Wow. But I, I still underestimated that because my purpose in life was to just get high and have fun, even with having a relationship. In my entire lifespan, I probably have had four partners. This one was the longest one, almost four years, and I still did not know how to be a partner. The first two were just for me being in the closet and not wanting to show people that we were together. Outside doors, we didn't hold hands or kiss or showed any affection. Indoors, we did. The third one showed affection, but it was on my terms, you know, because again, a fear. I didn't want to have to get in a fight every single time that I'm with him.
0: Yeah.
1: And with this one, it just didn't matter. We'd both jump in and start getting in fights with random people that said some stupid stuff with us. So we were both pretty much angry and wound up again. And it's funny now that I'm thinking about that, like, how before alcohol came into my life, I was completely wound up and uptight. And in 2012 to 2015, I'm right back at that again. But this time it was worse because I feel that I lost everything that there is about me what I believed in, what I thought life meant or any of that. Everything was all gone. And especially in 2015, after he and I broke up in February, moved in with my mom and she kicked me out in March again. Because now this time I'm not coming home. I'm using her syringes for her insulin so that I can get high. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I'm lying to her. She just didn't know what else to do. And so she kicked me out and that's when I became homeless. From that moment forward, it actually became so dark.
0: What was your first night on the streets like?
1: First night. So the one thing that I had going for myself now at this point was just a job that had just recently demoted me from assistant manager to a part-time associate.
0: Okay. Where?
1: At Fox Hills Mall at a mom and pop jewelry store. Got it. I didn't have anywhere else to go when my mom kicked me out, so I went to my job and tried to play it off cool and my boss noticed something and so I just told her the truth. So she just threw out a suggestion that I took which was for me to sleep outside the back door of our stock room on the mall property.
0: How did that feel?
1: Uncomfortable and I do recall crying that night because I was so full of anger and rage and I hated my family. I hated my ex for leaving me.
0: What did you take with you when you had to
1: leave home? I had three bags. One was my laundry bag at some point, but it had all my clean clothes. Okay. I had another bag that had my undergarments, so like underwear, socks, tank tops. Okay. And another bag that had my hygiene items. Two jackets, one that was in, the, in my laundry bag and another one that I would have on. Shoes? Maybe two. I, I, the, the shoes I don't remember because most of the time I'd always take them off and just walk without shoes. Got it. And that's all I really owned. The most pitiful part for me in that moment is showing up to work knowing that people knew or didn't know but saw that something was wrong. I was definitely noticeable that I was sucked up and malnourished, yellow skin, yellow eyes. It was noticeable that I had a drug addiction. But the worst part is when I would go into our bathroom for the store and I would give myself bird baths to stay clean. My boss... Lending me a few dollars or just buying me food so that I can have something to eat. And on days that she couldn't help me, i trash dig or just didn't eat. Uh, I'd rather do a lot more meth so that I didn't have an appetite.
0: Hmm. Which mm.
1: seemed to me at the time far more reasonable than trash digging for food. But the main vice that I had with all that, which comes with the price of meth, is sex and... I would find someone to sleep with so that I can have a place to sleep and hopefully a place to shower and maybe have something to eat. But when I couldn't find anyone, which was most nights, because I was pretty bad looking. You can tell I was a complete tweaker, or a lot of people kept calling me crackhead. Mm -hmm. I would end up sleeping in a bush because I kept getting woken up every morning, which I didn't like, if I even slept in back of that store.
0: Right.
1: And also just didn't feel comfortable after a while. felt like security was going to kick me out or the cops were going to arrest me for sleeping there and being on private property. So I just figured, you know, I'm just going to walk around. And so most of my nights would consist of me getting high, doing pitiful and incomprehensible actions with men that I probably wasn't even interested in. And I say probably because I don't recall any of this. I recall the actions that I was taking. I recall being there physically. But I don't recall I was saying, he's cute. Or I like him. You You weren't
0: as in touch with your emotional side of it. Right.
1: So the next best thing that I would do is just either walk around all night high. Mm
0: -hmm. Or if
1: I didn't have anything, I'd go and hide myself inside of a bush in a reservoir in the middle of Downey. Where are
0: you Um, getting the meth from once you became homeless? whoever I could get it from. Was it easy to find?
1: No. No. Most of the time towards the end, I didn't even... I, I was pretty much just dry. Okay. And I would have cotton balls from meth that yeah. I did before and try to suck up as much as I could. Or I'd steal some from whoever had it provided for me then.
0: Okay. Did and, you ever get the drugs from other homeless people? Mm-hmm.
1: And I would do some... Not-so-proud activities
0: for it. Did you make any friends in that state?
1: To me, everyone was a friend because Mm -hmm. I didn't have any. In reality, no, they weren't friends. But did I call them friends? Yes. Got
0: it. The closest thing you had to that at the time.
1: Because you were giving me your time to be able to hang out with me. And again, I'm used to buying your friendship, and so I did whatever it took for me to have your friendship. Mm Mm-hmm. All those homeless people that I had around me at the time were just guys or women that I've met, and that was it. They'd invite me over to their tent or to their friend's house who was a dealer. Yeah. Or to their bush.
0: To their bush. (laughs) Their designated bush.
1: Their designated bush. That was the closest that I've had to a friend.
0: Clearly, this was a very challenging time for you in your life. What kept you going on a day-to-day basis? What means of survival did you take?
1: (laughs) I wouldn't even call it survival. And I didn't have a means. I prayed every day for me to die.
0: Wow.
1: I didn't have the nerve to kill myself because for me, suicide was the easy way out Mm -hmm. and the shameful way out. And so I had this level of pride that really wasn't there, but it was there nonetheless. My goal now at this point was to numb my life up completely. I didn't want to feel, think, hear, speak, see, nothing. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to be dead. And if I can get as close as possible to being dead, perfect.
0: Wow. And that was a low point. Is that the lowest you got? That's the
1: darkest I've ever been. That's the darkest. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. It seems like you were feeling a lot of things at that time in your life. What were the top three feelings while being homeless? Number one, loneliness. That's the big one we hear from a lot of people. Loneliness. It's so...
1: Have either of you seen the the never-ending story?
0: No, but I've heard of it.
1: Okay, there's a scene the, towards the end where the darkness comes, and it just swallows the entire universe, little by little. That's what it felt like every day. Everywhere was just becoming dark and black and... Mm. No one was around. The sun didn't feel like the sun. The earth beneath me felt like it wasn't even there. So loneliness was definitely one. Regret was definitely another. Because if I would have just listened to my mom and stopped, why couldn't I just stop using? And then shame. The shame comes from the actions that I was taking. Sleeping with men three, if not four times older than me. (laughs) Allowing things to be done to me that weren't sexual, but very painful. And just the fact that every single day I would wake up saying, I'm not going to do anything today. I'm not going to do anything. But yet, five minutes later, I have a syringe in my arm. And I'm crying myself as I'm doing this drug because yet again, here I am with the needle in my arm, starting this trip all over again. Mm -hmm. And this time it's like, I don't know how long it's going to be. I've had close to seven days of being up straight. How I survived, I have no idea. Wow. (laughs) With no food and barely any water. Yeah. Like
0: six to seven days,
1: probably a little over six days scientifically, I should not be alive. What I learned in early sobriety is that those are God-given shots. (laughs) Yeah. Those moments. You don't hear those
0: numbers often. No, I've actually heard, some. I've met somebody that
1: had seven days, but they were in a complete psychosis that they might as well have been dead. They were just like zombies. Yeah, Just like if you were to walk in Skid Row right now and you see the person twitching and just talking to themselves and out of it like that.
0: What brought you
1: out of this state? In my recovery literature, it talks about a moment of clarity. (laughs) Where you have this small window of opportunity where you see yourself and in your life and where you're at. And in that moment of clarity, I was able to notice the loneliness, the regret, and the shame. I remember wanting to just douse myself with rubbing alcohol or gasoline and just cleanse myself up but at the same time I remember having this like I cannot do this anymore I have to stop I cannot but I didn't know how again I have lost everything from the inside out
0: how many years was this of being homeless that you had it
1: wasn't years okay this was in the span of three months oh wow it's not as much as a lot of people have had but it's been long enough for me to have worse experiences while being on the street like The way that I see it, it's like a timeline. From 2005 to 2008, had my little problems here and there, but it was all right. From 2008 to 2012, it was just a complete shit show. From 2012 to 2015, it was the hell underneath hell. I don't even know how to put it. It's that dark. It's that powerful. The open experience that I had. Those three months were definitely like I was right at the front of the death store. Just take me now. And I think I might have had actually even a thought like, you know, I'm just going to jump in front of a bus. But I can never build up that courage because, again, to me, suicide is pathetic. Or at least that's what I thought then. Today, now I know that's a real thing. Anyone that goes through this experience, I get it. I've seen multiple people recently die just from this disease alone. It's just a painful thing. I mean,
0: Um, I think alcoholism and addiction is prevalent in any sort of community. It's whether you are able to access the types of support needed to get over it. And the willpower. I think it's all a combination of that.
1: Well, the support is always going to be there. We just can't see it at that time. It. Because we're not ready. Yeah. My friend that got me a bed at the midnight mission when I needed it, that was probably the first time I was able to see. But now that I recall, there's been several times where... I actually was thinking about this earlier. I did have my boss from Bath & Body Works. I was just kind of like, don't you think you're drinking a lot? She would always give me more than enough chances to be able to get my shit together, and I took it for granted. I see. You know?
0: Yeah. The most I could relate to that is just my own struggles that I've had in life. I guess it's all relative. But what I see with getting advice from people when you're in that moment is sometimes you really have to see it through yourself to listen and understand what those people from the outside are telling yeah. you. Yeah. And that's where that moment of clarity came.
1: Right. Where, like, everything that you were telling me before was now visible to me. Makes sense. And I'm grateful that I had that moment when it came. I would have probably had a little over five years now, but I had to experiment one more time. Because mm. one of the worst delusions that any addict goes through is that... Their problem is just one thing. But in reality, it's anything that affects us from the neck up. Um, I walked into the mission thinking that I had a meth problem because I had already kicked heroin off because I wasn't going to be on the streets or without my ex to help me come down from heroin. That was probably, like, the last good thing that he did for me, which is he took me off of heroin weeks before he even planned to break up with me. Mm -hmm. And when he broke up with me, he sent me to my mom's house with some... What are those pills called? methadone, mm. enough for it to last so that I can come down from heroin or dopamine soon. But I kept going with meth. So I walked in there thinking that was my issue. Disregarding the fact I had other issues too, drinking oh, yeah. in particular. And in December, the day after Christmas, that's when I ended up relapsing to alcohol. What year? What year? Uh, 2015. Okay. Yeah. So my sobriety is actually December 27th of 2015. Mm. If I wouldn't have drank, it would have been July 15th. I see. So now I know for a fact that drinking or any drugs, pills, or any of that... Not not for me. Not even poppers. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. Yeah. Because addiction is
0: addiction.
1: Addiction is addiction, and that's why we talk about it as alcoholism.
0: Mm. It
1: doesn't matter if you have an addiction to pills, drugs... We're not worried about what it is that you use. We're worried about why you used, which is the ism portion of it. Mm -hmm. And if we can fix the ism, then you won't have to worry about the drinking or the pills or the pot or any of that. And things can slowly start building itself back up. I am now a testament of that because Mm -hmm. it just took for me to put that down first, see what's wrong with me. Which is where it helped me identify I've been living with bullshit since I could remember. Mm -hmm. And that was my only solution. Drugs and alcohol was my solution to all my problems, which was all that doubt, that fear, that not being able to live life on life's terms. And here they spoon-fed me little by little in my recovery how to live life on life's terms. And if I mess up, to get back up.
0: Yep
1: doesn't mean that I have to sit and mope in my own crap. I can get up yeah. and do something different and take that experience for later on. And it's helped me out so much because now I get to give that back to guys that come to me to help them out, yes. right? I get to bring that back to the guys at the mission. You know, I'm working there now and I try to not do anything in recovery because I feel that it goes against what we're supposed to be doing, but at least I get to bring it In a sense of, like, if you see me around and you need an ear to listen or a shoulder to cry on, by all means, I'm right here.
0: While you were homeless, you said that your friend helped you get into the Midnight Mission, but did you ever try to get into any other shelters before that?
1: I did not know that shelters or programs like that, I didn't even know Skid Row existed Hmm, when I was out on the streets. I've heard of sober livings, and the word was clear for me, sober living.
0: (laughs) So then you were like, nope, not for me, because it was...
1: Because if it's sober, it's yep. twelve step base, which means God, God and religion. none of that. Yeah. None right. of that for me.
0: It was a turnoff.
1: It was a complete turnoff. But the price seemed right. Five hundred dollars for a room, that's not bad. Not bad at all. <laughs> <laughs> but I just wasn't willing. I'd rather spend those five hundred dollars and getting high. So Yeah. Yeah, it was challenging.
0: Tell us more about the midnight mission.
1: From nineteen fourteen to nineteen seventy-four It became just a soup kitchen in 1974 when our managing director brought 12-step philosophy into the Midnight Mission. What that means is that if you came in with a drug and alcohol problem, we are going to help you with that as well. That's the program that I went into in 2015. We we help reunite families as well. So there's a lot of women that were losing their kids through DCFS, which is pretty much the organization that will take children that are in harm away from their parents. And so a lot of the courts will always say, like, if you can get sober and get yourself back on your feet, we will grant you to have your children. And so that's what we try to aim for. In downtown, we can house up to 250 individuals.
0: Okay.
1: Right now, because of the pandemic, we are under 100.
0: Because of regulations?
1: Regulations, but at the same time, a lot of people leave because they don't want to be quarantined inside a building.
0: They've volunteered they leave to leave. Voluntarily okay.
1: voluntarily, and we can't stop them. Mm-hmm, right. uh, it's a choice.
0: What would you say is your biggest challenge working at the Midnight Mission right now?
1: Right now, it's trying to maintain the safety of everyone that's living there.
0: Are people living there required to wear masks? Absolutely, the, okay. everyone.
1: In the dormitories, it's free for all. We definitely suggest for you to wear a mask mm-hmm. because you guys do live together. Right. But because they live together, just like you would in your household, you don't wear a mask in your yeah. household because you guys live together, right? Mm-hmm. You guys know what you're, what you're doing there. The women and the men don't go out of the Midnight Mission mm-hmm. unless you're working. Mm. So there's really not that much of a risk. The risk comes from us who
0: go don't out. live
1: there when right. we go out. Right. We've been blessed since the beginning of the pandemic in March to today. And I use that word lightly. With only two cases of wow. COVID, while the other organizations pretty much had shut down and yeah. right now were labeled high risk. Yeah, clearly we're doing something. Right. Yeah, you are. But it's still a challenge. The best way to help right now is through our donation volunteer base.
0: Got it. Meaning what does that mean?
1: You're still volunteering and helping us provide meals uh-huh. by creating sack lunches. You can not have fun while doing it and still be able to help out. Yes. Of course. What
0: word? Or words of advice do you have for people in regards to helping homeless people in the shelters, helping people living on the streets? What's your advice? Because a majority of our listeners come from privileged communities. And so we really want to get the word out there.
1: Here's what helped me, which I didn't mention earlier. But I always talk about this when I give tours at the mission. Is smile. Hmm. Make them feel welcome. Make them feel like a human being. Because at the end of the day, they are human beings. What probably gave me that window of opportunity to see myself for what I was living through was from the memory of this one woman who was going to work. And she looked at me dead in the eyes, which I haven't had done for a while, and wished me a good day.
0: Wow.
1: That's all she did. And at that very moment, when I had that little window of opportunity, I remember thinking about that and crying. Wow. I remember feeling kind of like warm. Like I was ashamed, but at the same time, it felt nice to have interaction with another human being that I didn't have to do anything to get help from. So it can start from the smallest detail of smiling at them or buying them some food.
0: What do you recommend... Buying them food over giving them money?
1: Absolutely. This is the way that I see it. If you would have given me money when I was on the streets, I probably would have been putting a needle in my arm yet again. And as effective and ideal as that may seem for somebody, you're killing them. And I hate to put it that way, but it's the truth. And not saying that all individuals that are on the streets are drug addicts, because not all of them are. Mm -hmm. Some of them just... Bad luck. Work just didn't work out and they lost their place. I get it. But even them will appreciate a hot meal.
0: Over cash.
1: Right? Because it's there.
0: It's more personal too.
1: It's very personal. The reward that I get every single time that I see somebody smiling after I give them a bag full of food. It's the best feeling. It's life. It's life. It's hope. And on top of that, I'm giving them hope to survive another day. Be cautious, but show some love and compassion. Especially nowadays, because one of the things that we notice is that a lot of individuals that are on the streets lost the opportunity to get any sense of hope with everything shutting down. The place that they used to be able to go use the restroom or get asked for a cup of water,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know. And one of the most important things that I want to state that I agree with the Midnight Missions vocabulary, is stop using the homeless. Yeah. They're not the homeless. They're mm-hmm. not a group of people. They are our community.
0: This is also a big part of our podcast where we want to talk about the rhetoric surrounding homeless communities. A lot of questions I get are: so then, what do we say?
1: Our homeless community. Our
0: to make it more personal. Our empathy.
1: That's all it is. It's our homeless community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or. The homeless individuals, because now you're not singling them out as just one entity.
0: Right,
1: they Mm -hmm. are a group of entity from our people.
0: And at the end of the day, still human, just like me and you. Exactly. Thank you for that. Absolutely. This is amazing. Yeah. So I wish I could give you a hug. Yeah.